Hey there, I'm Britton, and welcome to the Cape Cod Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Cape Cod Church, you can visit our website at www.capecodchurch.com or follow us on social media at Cape Cod Church. In the meantime, enjoy this message in our current series, Home. Today we continue our home series where we've been talking about the idea and the value of church community, what church is, how it operates, and why it's valuable to us. And after last week with guest speaker Gordon McDonald, I kind of felt like we could just end the series after two weeks. It was a spectacular message. If you missed it, it's worth going to YouTube and checking it out. It just reflects on the last 80 years of life and ministry and the things that in that view have been valuable. And so I felt like, where do we go after that? After the view from 80 years old, we can only continue to go back further. So I thought today we would start at the beginning. Today I want to go back to the very beginning, back to take a look at Genesis 1. Now, we are not going to spend today talking about the traditional controversial pieces of the Genesis narrative. We're not going to be talking about human origins today. So if you were here today or you're watching online and you were about to click out of this video or you're contemplating going to bathroom and making your escape, no need to do that. We're not gonna talk about that this morning. And if you're here this morning and you just got really, really excited because you hoped that we were going there, I'm sorry to disappoint you, but you're going to have to save that conversation for the car ride home while you're all together at home with your family wrestling with this hurricane. Now today, I want to talk about something that we often miss because we're so focused about the other wonderful things in Genesis, but something that we miss in the story, and I think this home series is a perfect opportunity to do that. Because the Genesis narrative, the creation narrative, has something to say to us about the way that we're designed, about our interior design, and about the value of home. And here's what I believe. If there are ways that we are designed for, if we can identify those things, it's actually really helpful. And even if you're here this morning or you're watching online and you're not sure if you believe that there is a God out there who designed you for something, it's still really helpful to reflect on the way that we're built, the way that we operate so that we can evaluate that and try and live in a way that helps us to flourish. So wherever you're at this morning, this kind of act of reflection on how are we designed, what are we built for, is really, really useful. And in Genesis, we find a claim that we are, in fact, built for a home. You're probably familiar with the opener of this story, and if not, it's pretty predictable. It says, in the beginning, God created the skies and the land. So the opening line sets the stage. The grammar of that first line lets us know that it's actually a summary of what's about to come. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, or the skies and the land, and now we're going to hear about it. And it continues. Now the land was wild and waste, and darkness was over the face of the watery deep. Now here's what all Christians agree on from both sides of the aisle, that at some point in history, at some point at the beginning of time, God created the material world out of nothing. 
But at some point, he created everything that we see and we know out of nothing. To believe in the Christian God is to believe this, and that's assumed in this text. But biblical scholars agree on all sides that that is actually not what this particular story is about. Because when we enter the scene, what we find is that the material world is already there. The material that God is going to work with to form the world is already there. We've kind of entered the story partway through, and it's taking that as an assumption, entering mid-scene. And we know this because it says the land was wild and waste. There's already something there, and the darkness was over the face of the watery deep. It's just not yet formed. So when it talks about God creating in this passage, in this story, what it's talking about is God forming something, like a builder who's about to create a masterpiece, and it sets it up for us to expect him to create something fantastic. So another way of understanding that first line is, in the beginning of the world as we know it, God formed the skies and the land. And we go on. Now the land was wild and waste, the darkness was over the face of the watery deep, but the breath of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the text kind of sets us up like the first line in the movie. It's identifying a problem and then it's introducing the main character. God is going to form the world. We know this. It's already told us that at the beginning. And when he shows up on the scene, it says that the, world, the setting is wild and waste. Other versions describe this as formless or empty. It's unordered, it's chaotic, and it's also uninhabited. There's no life there. So it sets up this scene, this description of a chaotic landscape with no life whatsoever, like an alien wasteland. And it described the scene as darkness over the face of the watery depths, which is an ancient way of describing and understanding this chaotic pre-creation state. But it says the breath or the presence of God was over this alien wasteland, this chaotic landscape. And so we know what to expect. The master is going to start his masterpiece. And so it begins. And God said, let there be light and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. And God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So we see this pattern. God speaks, things start to take shape, he names them, and it closes with this phrase, and there was evening and there was morning, one day. And we see this over and over again in this creation narrative over the course of six days. Each day, God solves the two problems that it's set up for us, that it's chaotic, that it's unordered. So he's going to bring order. He's going to bring order into this chaotic landscape, and that it's empty, uninhabited. So he's going to fill it with life. So in day one, he orders this dark landscape and he introduces the concept of time, of light and darkness, and now both have their place. And then on day two, he separates these dark, chaotic waters and he creates space to live. He creates this thing that he calls sky. And then on day three, he pulls back those waters and he creates dry land this place where life can thrive, and then he introduces plant life into that setting. So by the time we get to day three, 
He has solved the first problem. The world is no longer a chaotic, unordered wasteland. Instead, he's created three ordered realms. He's established a place where life could survive. And then in days four through six, he goes about filling that space with life. On day four, we see that he fills life with, he fills the sky with marine, he fills the oceans with marine life and the sky with birds. And then on day five, he fills the oceans with marine life. And day four, he fills the sky with the sun and the moon and the stars. And then the last day, he introduces land animals. So he introduces all of this life into the space that he's created. He fills the sky with stars, the sun and the moon. He fills the ocean with marine life, with fish. He fills this new ordered sky with birds to fly through it. And then he fills this dry land that he's created, that he's literally pulled back. He fills it with land animals to walk amongst it. So now he's solved the second problem. He's created order out of chaos, and then he's filled that space, this habitable world, with life. And so we see that the problems that it's set up for us have now been solved. And the text is inviting us to think of God like an artist or a builder. And we can kind of think of this creation narrative in terms of someone building a home. So God shows up on the scene, and all the material is already there. He's prepared his lumber, his nails, everything. And so he goes about creating the structure of this house. He lays the foundation, he fills the foundation, he raises the walls. He starts to connect the plumbing and the electric. He puts a roof over the house. So by the time you get to day, the end of day three, there's a place where somebody could survive. The house, the structure of the house has been built. And then the builder goes around and he starts naming things. He says, oh, this space right here, that's going to be the porch. <laughs> this over here, this is going to be the bedroom. We actually see God doing this in this story, that as he's creating and building the house, he's also identifying portions. He goes, this is going to be called sky. And this is going to be the land. This is where the land animals are going to live. It's like the builder walking through his home. And then days four through six, it's like the builder is now filling the house. He's going about, he's painting the walls. He's attaching those glow-in-the-dark stars to the top of all the children's bedrooms. He's putting in light fixtures, and he's filling it with beautiful furniture. So by the time you get to the end of day six, the builder has not only created a place where someone could survive, he's created a beautiful home where someone could thrive, where someone could thrive and live well. The builder has created something safe, secure, and stable. Now, that's a really beautiful story. It's a story about a God who crafted a beautiful world, who built something safe, secure, and stable out of what was previously dangerous, chaotic, and lifeless. And that in itself would be really beautiful. I think it's one of the reasons that this narrative is so enchanting. But it's not done. Because on day six, we get a bonus prize. God has already created the land animals, but then he adds one extra thing. And it's almost as if the story has been leading up to this moment. It says this, And God said, 
Let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the seas, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the land, and over every creeper that creeps on the land. And notice something different here. God forms this last creature, human beings, and then he looks over after all the other things that he's created, and he said, these things are going to be under you, that you are going to rule over them, that they will be for you to manage. Essentially, all these things that I've created, the sky, the space, these creatures, they're here to serve you. They're for you to manage. And it's as if the builder gets to the end of the week. He finishes the house, if you could build a house in a week, and then he invites in the tenants and he goes, this is for you. This is not just a house that's beautiful. This is going to be a home for you. The claim of the creation narrative in Genesis is that God built the world to be a home for us. Now, as modern readers, it's really easy for us to miss just how radical this would be to an ancient audience, the first audience of Genesis and the creation narrative. But to them, it would have been crazy. Because at the time that the ancient Israelites were hearing this story, there were also a dozen other origin stories and creation stories that were trying to, um, that were becoming popular at the time, each one trying to become the mainstream world view. And in the surrounding cultures, almost all of the creation stories didn't look anything like this. The majority of people in ancient times actually believed that the world was created not for humans, but for the gods. They believed in a multitude of gods and believed that they created the world to serve themselves. And in those stories, humanity was often introduced as an afterthought and actually a way to serve those gods, that they would be their servants or their slaves. And one of the most popular origin stories of the time was that found in Babylon. It's in this story that a variety of gods get together. They've been working in the earth. They've been doing, they've been working and doing what they need to do, but they get exhausted. They get exhausted and they start to complain amongst themselves. So the gods go to the king of the gods, the Babylonian king Marduk, and they say, we're tired. We don't want to do this anymore. Solve our problem. And so the king of the Babylonian king of the gods, Marduk, comes up with a solution that he thinks is really clever. He comes up with this genius plan and listen to what he proposes. This is from the ancient texts that have since been discovered. He says, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. He shall be charged with the service of the gods that they might be at ease. This was the dominant world view in ancient times for those that were hearing all of these creation stories. Man was a savage created to be a slave to the gods, to serve them, that that was the point of this world. I mean, how dismal is that? Can you imagine reading this story to your children at night? <laughs> I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. That's pretty dismal. And we can kind of laugh or at that with our modern sensibilities because it's a little bit foreign to us, but the implications of it are not that far off for many of us today. 
Because for those of us today in our society who question whether there is a God out there, or if there is a God, whether he's personal, the implications of that are quite similar. Because at the best case, if there is no God, in the best case, perhaps there's something out there, then maybe we're just the fortunate tenants in a house by a distant landlord. That's in the best case. In the worst case, we're just furniture that's been lucky to be dropped off in this place for a time, and it's here today, gone tomorrow, in some lucky cosmic accident. But in no case, in no case, is the world a friendly place for us, a place that was made for us, a place for us to belong. The creation narrative in Genesis, it steps into that space for the ancients then and for us today, and it's against that backdrop that it introduces this story and claims something radically different. It says, you've heard those other stories, but let me tell you the truth. It's actually so much better. God didn't create this world to serve himself with you as an afterthought. You are not a servant in his household, a slave in this world, and you're not just a piece of furniture who's lucky to be here for a time in some lucky cosmic accident. No, actually, this place was built for you. This world was intended to be your home. It was designed for you. This world is all for you. This is your home. This is where you belong. And if that's true, it's really good news. Because each of us, each of us longs for a place to call home, a place that is stable, secure, a place where we belong. And the claim of Genesis is that desire in you, that desire in us is not a cruel joke. It's not a desire that's going to be left unfulfilled. It's not just something in you that happens to be there but can never perfectly be fulfilled. No, the desire is in you because you were designed for it. And not only were you designed for a home, God has given you that home. This world was designed to be a place for you to rest. It's yours. You're not just living in this and one day will pass for generations and generations. No, no, no. This is your home. And if that's true, it's really good news for any of us who have ever felt that deep-seated desire for a place to belong, a place of security and stability and safety. The Genesis narrative claims that you were designed for that and that this world was built by God as your home. But why would God do that? Why would God do that? I mean, it was a radical concept to the ancients, to the, uh, ancients back then, but even today, I mean, it's a little bit mind-blowing. Why would God do that? 
A hint is built into the story, and it's a theme that will carry on in Israel for the rest of its history. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 through 3, it sums up the whole story with this. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. After the six days of creation, on day seven, God rests. Now that day rest is familiar to us, and some of you may have heard this passage before, but the word rest in Hebrew means to take up residence. Everywhere that it's used in the Old Testament, it has this double meaning of stopping in action so that you can dwell in a place. It's used all throughout the Old Testament. It describes uh, the, the plagues in ancient Israel when it talks about the locusts coming into a place. It says that they rested in the land, that they took up residence there. When it talks about kings in the Old Testament, it says that they were given rest for their enemies so that they could dwell peacefully in the land. It has this double meaning, not only of stopping something, of resting for something. It's not taking a nap. It's to take up residence in a place. So in Genesis 2, when it says that on the seventh day, God rested from all its work, what it's claiming is that God is going to live in the world. He's created the world to be his home too. It turns out that the builder didn't only build this house for you. The builder is also a father and he's created a home for his children. So you see, the most radical part about the creation narrative is not the building itself, although it's fascinating and beautiful and so cool. The most radical thing about the creation narrative is who the house was built for and who the house was built by. It was built for us to be our home by a God who considers himself our father and considers us his children. And that's really good news. And if it's true that that's what we were designed for, then all we need to do is to find that home. But that's often easier said than done. And if you're familiar with the Genesis narrative, then you know what happens next. We're all on a hunt for home, but sometimes even when it's right in front of your face, <laughs> it's hard to find. And that's true for the first human residence as well. In Genesis 3, verse 6, it says this, When the woman, Eve, so now we've been introduced to Adam and to Eve, when a woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. So you may be familiar with this story. God gives these people this beautiful home. And then, as parents often do, he gives them some house rules. He says, you can't eat from this one tree. Pretty reasonable. And yet, they break the house rule. The woman takes the fruit, and she also gave it to her husband, who's with her, and he ate it too. And notice what led Eve to pick up the fruit. It says it looked good for food. It looked like it would nourish her and keep her from being hungry. It said it was pleasing to the eye. It looked like it would also taste really good and that she would enjoy it. And it said that it would help her grow in wisdom. Awesome. Well, those are all great 
things, all good things that should help somebody survive and flourish, but they weren't what God had prescribed. As you know from Pastor's introduction video today, my parents are away for their 30th anniversary, and I am so excited for them. I hope that they enjoy this time just to celebrate 30 years. It's a special gift to have parents that are celebrating that much time in marriage, and I hope that they have so much fun. And I also hope that you'll pray for them, because uh, just before they left, literally last night, my dad sent me an email about his life insurance policy. I don't know if that's like standard for parents before they go on vacations. But I sent him an email back and I was like, um, please don't fall off a cliff at the Grand Canyon. And he emailed me back and said, yeah, but it would make a really good sermon illustration. <laughs> so please pray for them because I don't want to have to take out that life insurance policy. Um, but also at, when they left, they didn't just leave me in charge of that. They also left me in charge of Ruby, our puppy. If you're new to Cape Cod Church, if you've been here for a week, you've probably heard of Ruby. Ruby is our newest puppy. She, our newest child, essentially. She is a puppy. She's almost one year old. We love her very much. But I was left with very specific instructions from my parents on how to take care of her. Just how much to feed her every day, where to walk her, how to take care of her. And this is my favorite. I was left with special instructions on how to spend Ruby's birthday. This Thursday, Ruby turns one, and I have been told that I have to deliver her the birthday cake that has been created for her by my mother. And not only that, I was left with very special instructions to invite Ruby's best friend, Angus, the Portuguese water dog from down the street, over for her birthday party so that he could also have a slice of her birthday cake. This is insane and awesome. <laughs> and I can't, don't even ask me to do anything on Thursday. I'm busy celebrating Ruby's birthday. <sighs> this Saturday, a side note, is also my sister Brooke's birthday. And uh, my mom did make her a cake in advance. It's an ice cream cake. She's very fortunate. But I swear, I think the only reason my mom did that before she left on vacation was so that the favoritism wouldn't be entirely obvious. <laughs> Now, why did my parents leave me in charge of Ruby? Because it's pretty obvious, Ruby doesn't make good life decisions when she's on her own. Her favorite snack is used tissues. That's disgusting, but it's true. It's sad, it's true. She likes to try and escape at night so that she can stay outside until like 2 a.m. And she'll be exhausted and miserable and grumpy the next day, but that's what she likes to try to do if she can. Ruby makes terrible life decisions on her own, which is why I've been left in charge of the house. Because it turns out that the thing that makes our house a stable, secure, safe place for Ruby to live, the thing that makes our house a home for Ruby is not the house itself or the resources that it provides, it's the people who are looking out for her. It's the people who are looking out for her. Because left to Ruby's own devices, she wouldn't have a birthday cake. She would spend the whole day eating grass, and then she'd be sick. It turns out that the thing that makes a house 
a home is not the resources that it provides, it's not the house itself, it's the parents who are looking out for the children. And sometimes we miss this. Adam and Eve missed it, and they were only the first of a long line of humanity to miss it. It's the Father who is our home. Home is where the Father is. And there are many beautiful, thing that, beautiful things that this world can provide, but they do not provide the security, the stability, or the comfort of home because that can only be found where the Father is. And it's written all over this story, the tragic mistake that Adam and Eve make, the tragic mistake that you and I make. Because all throughout the story, God has been the one providing that security and stability. The reason that they have this garden, this place to live, is because he ordered that chaotic, dangerous place into a place that could provide life. He brought those fruit trees into existence. He is the one who created space for them to survive and to thrive. He's been doing it all throughout the story. But Adam and Eve see this thing that looks like it will provide them stability, security, and safety. It looks good. It looks like it will help them survive. It might even be enjoyable. It might even be a good thing. So they see something that they think will provide them with those things, and then they take it. But it's not what God had prescribed, and it's not the source of everything that they are looking for, because home is where the Father is. And in Genesis, we see the tragic repercussions of this. Adam and Eve make the mistake of relying on the house that he's built, of ousting the father from their home. And in verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden of the cool of the day. The father is home, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Where are you? And you can almost hear the heartbreak in the father's voice. Why are you hiding from me? Where are you? Why have you shut me out of this house? So often, we turn to the things in this world that we think will offer us safety, security, and stability, when in reality, the Father is the only one who can provide the home that we're looking for. Some of us here today have been doing that. We know, we have a relationship with our Father. We know, I've been designed for this. That's my home but there have been things in our lives that have looked really good. They've looked like they've solved the problems that we have. They've looked like they could help us build a home and we've taken them and we've lost focus of where our home actually finds its source. If you search for stability, security, and safety, you will find in this world only chaos. But if you search for the Father, you'll find him because he's waiting. He's saying, where 
are you? And if you find the Father, with him comes the home that you were longing for all along. Father is the home that we long for. He's the rest that we long for. This is what we were designed for. Next week, we continue our home series, and Pastor Tom is going to talk about what that looks like. To find a home in this world, to find a home in your church community. And so you've got one week. You've got one week to wrestle with this idea. And here's my challenge to you. If you're here this morning and you're just exploring, you're not sure whether there really is a God out there who designed this world. And if, if that, that he is a father who considers you a child, you're not sure if you're designed that way, you've got one week to wrestle with that, to look and to say, am I really designed for that kind of home? And if I am, what does that mean? You owe it to yourself to consider that possibility. Because if it's true, then this is really good news that can change the shape of your life. And if you're here this morning and you have a relationship with the Father, my challenge to you this week is to look at your life and see where have I been depending on other things to be the source of security and stability and safety in my life where really I should just be making my home with the Father. And if you're here this morning and you've been exploring, you've put one foot into that house, you've been looking around at the house, the world that he's created, you've put one foot into it and you've experienced a taste of that home, a taste of that belonging. And you're at the point where you're like, yeah, I believe that that's real and that's what I want this week. Don't wait. Don't wait to restore your relationship with the Father, to respond to that call of where are you and to say, I am here, God. Make me a home. Will you pray with me? Father, all across this room, we come to you on different journeys, and different paths. And Father, we admit that sometimes we wrestle. Sometimes we wrestle to recognize whether you're really there, whether you are indeed a good Father who intends good things for us. And sometimes we wrestle, Father, letting go of control, letting go of trying to build this home for ourselves and to simply rest in you, the source for security, stability, a safe place to call home. And so Father, this week, we just ask that you would speak to us, that you wouldn't, that you wouldn't leave us alone in this, that you would wrestle with us, that you would speak into our lives, that you would reveal yourself to us, Father, that we might be with you fully at home, fully human. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for tuning into this message from our current series, Home. If you enjoyed today's message, join us again next week or join our live stream on Sunday at both 9 and 11 a.m. EST. We are so excited to meet you and get to know you. By just filling out the Connect card down in the caption, we will have the opportunity to reach out and introduce you to our church. Lastly, share this message with a friend. And if you want to support us, leave us a like or subscribe so you never miss out on a message. Thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time.